All right. We're going to talk about Vehech Kanan, but before I talk about Vehech Kanan, this week's Torah portion, it's going to be a little bit different. I'm going to be doing, um, uh, I'm going to use four videos in this week's teaching on Torah portion. And each video is a quick three to four minute video. So it's about 15 minutes that we're going to break up into four sections. But they do such a good job at explaining these words that I'm going to try to teach you. And much better job than what I would be doing. But we're not there yet. When we get there, you'll see what I'm talking about. But this is the 45th reading from the Torah and the second reading from the book of Devarim, which is named the Etkanan. So if your name is um, Jonathan, for instance, you know, Yochanan, uh, that's, that's that, or Kana, that's that same root, Kanan. Which means to, to like uh, find favor. I ask favor from you is kind of the essence. Kana means favor. And I besought. The title comes from the first verse of the reading, which says, I also pleaded with the Lord at that time. The portion completes the historical prologue of the book of Deuteronomy, the covenant document, and begins a rehearsal of the stipulations. Part of that rehearsal is a repetition of the Ten Commandments and the famous first passage. Uh, the famous passage from the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we just read a little while ago. Um, a couple years back, uh, Anthony did a, a teaching on the Etchanan, and I still stuck with me to this day. He did a great job teaching on the Torah portion. I think that was two years ago, was it? Two years ago, he did. And did a great job. That, that is available on our podcast or on the website if you want to listen to it. But again, I want to review with you the fact that the book of Deuteronomy is laid out like an ancient suzerain treaty document, a Near Eastern treaty document. And this guy did a doctoral dissertation showing the parallels between an ancient treaty structure and the book of Deuteronomy, okay? So it's really important that we understand it that way because it is a covenant, and covenants in the ancient Near Eastern world cannot ever be broken. They are eternal, all right? And God is making a marital contract with his people. He is betrothing himself to his people. This is an outline of this week's Torah portion, and we're going to be focusing only on the red portions. Deuteronomy 5, 1, and Deuteronomy 6, 1, the Ten Commandments, and then we're going to focus on the Great Commandment, and what that is, okay? But you can see there's a lot packed in this week's Torah portion, as there always is. It's important that you read it throughout the week and get an understanding of it. But this is we're ending the historical prologue, as I just said, and we're entering now some good practical application kind of stuff. Here's some stuff that you need to do, in other words, Moses is about to say. Here's what we went through, here's what we saw, now here's what I need you to continue to do. And that's what we're going to get into today. So in Judaism, the Ten Commandments are not called the Ten Commandments, they're called the Ten Words. Um, because, yeah, right here, Esaret HaDevarot, the Ten Words. Because it's it's that's that's how it's that's how it reads in the Hebrew. It's like ten words. And you get these ten you could say utterances. But in Judaism they know it as the ten words. But this is a painting by uh, Aaron de Chavez from uh, let's see, 1675. And it says up here, if you read Spanish, you can, you can read that. But Ani Adunai Elohecha in Hebrew, I am the Lord your God. That's commandment number one on that tablet. Now, Aaron de Chavez is uh, writing this, or painting this, from a Jewish perspective. How do I know that? And not a Catholic perspective, or a um, Protestant perspective, because Protestants were around at that point. How do I know that he's looking at the Ten Commandments from a Jewish perspective, and not a Christian perspective? Because he starts with the first commandment as, I am the Lord your God. And if you look at this graph here, there are so many, and you can, you can ask me for this, I'll email it to you or something like that too, but every uh, Abrahamic faith and even some different sects of Christianity, they divide out and enumerate the Ten Commandments differently. So for instance, over here, this is the Talmudic uh, delineation of the Ten Commandments. So the very first commandment within Judaism is, I am the Lord your God. That's the first commandment, the Ten Commandments, is to have a mental understanding that He is the Creator. And then it goes into commandment number two, you shall have no other gods before me. And also in Judaism, commandment number two, don't make any graven images. So they couple those two together, and that makes up the second commandment. 
Whereas if you go to the Catholics, see the C right here. They have all of these as one commandment. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any great images. So you can see they kind of all number those differently. So have you ever been in like Sunday school and you know your Sunday school teacher you know, beats you over the head because you didn't memorize the Ten Commandments perfectly? Well, you can pull out this graph now and show her, you know, or him, like, hey, they're all different. So I, excuse my confusion, but they're all the same. In other words, all the information is present. There isn't different commandments or anything like that. It's just they group them differently and order them differently, okay? But all the commandments are there. But I just wanted to show this to you to show that sometimes people are confused. Well, which one is the first commandment? Which one is the fifth commandment? Which one is the fourth commandment? And it's okay to be confused in this situation. Because, for instance, the fourth commandment in Judaism, the fourth commandment in the Septuagint, the fourth commandment according to Philo is the Sabbath day. But in... According to, to Martin Luther, the founder of Protestantism, or according to the Samaritans, or the Catholics, it's the third commandment is the Sabbath day. It's a little bit different, right? It's the ordering. All the same information, just different ordering of that information. Make sense? Okay. Now that you're really confused. <laughs> Ronald Reagan, I love this quote. He says, I have wondered at times what the Ten Commandments would have looked like if Moses had run them through the U.S. Congress. <laughs> What do you think they would have looked like? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit more uh, wordy, huh? I like that. Yeah, yeah. Very possible. So I think it's fitting we go to Deuteronomy chapter five in our Bibles, and uh, I'm going to call on volunteers, but I'm going to call on volunteers of a certain demographic. Deuteronomy chapter five. I think it's fitting we read through the Ten Commandments. Word for word, no commentary. It's important that we hear these, these, these words, these ten utterances, have like no other documents, utterance, speech, changed the fabric of society and human history. They have elevated the morality of the world, these ten utterances right here. So I'm going to get... Um, People who are 16 or under to volunteer and come up and read one of the ten. So I'm going to pick the first volunteer, and that's going to be Michael. Will you come up and read commandment number one? And then I'm going to volunteer Andreas to come up and read commandment number two. And then I'm going to volunteer... Mariah to come up and read commandment number three. And then I want Hannah to read commandment four. Ariana, you're going to come up and read commandment number five. And Noel, I see you not trying not to make eye contact. Come on, you're going to read commandment number six. Gabrielle, you're going to come up and read seven. Where's Noah? He's hiding. Hiding. Don't make eye contact. Oh, there he's back there. Noah, you're going to come up and... Oh, oh, is that Isaac back there? Yeah. Hey, Isaac, come on. You're going to read. You know how to read, right? All right. I think Y is too old. Too old. Yeah. Oh, Noah, you're going to come up and read one. Okay. So, guys, what you're going to do is I'm going to point to what you're going to read, and you pass the microphone back, okay? Why am I having this younger generation do this? Because this younger generation is the generation that's going to face some of the most lawlessness in our world. Some of the greatest lawlessness in our world. And confusion over what is right and what is wrong. And the Ten Commandments are the Cliff Notes version of the entire Torah. So if we can point them to these, if they can take a microphone and read them publicly and declare them publicly before you, a congregation, I hope that it will better equip them to, to live them out and to share them with the world around them as the world gets more and more confused over what is right and what is wrong. All right, you ready? Command number one. I am I your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt where you lived as slaves. You are, you are to not have no other gods before you. You are not to make yourselves a part of any kind or a 
of anything in heaven above, on the earth, under, on the earth beneath, or in the water below the ground. We are not to bow down to force further, for I, I don't know your God, and the jealous God, punishing the children of the children for the sins of the of their parents. Also, the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But displaying grace to the thousandth generation of those who love me and I my country. You are not to misuse the name of Adonai your God, because Adonai will not even punish someone who misuses his name. Do not covet your, covet your neighbor's wife. Do not covet your neighbor's house or his field or his male or female slave, his ox, his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Do we get them all? But thank you guys for doing that, for volunteering to uh, read, being voluntold to read. Well, that's, that's the Ten Commandments. And they're also found in Exodus chapter 19 and 20. We have the leading up to the Ten Commandments. But I want to turn your attention now to... to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6. So turn there now. Move over just a page or two. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And we're going to move right along and talk about this significant prayer in our faith called the Shema. Now you see here, this is uh, what it looks like in a Torah scroll. Shema Yisrael Adonai Elohim Adonai Echad. And this is the Vehafta. Vehafta Et Adonai Echad. Keep going there. Okay, but that's what it looks like. And you ever wonder, why is this prayer so central to our faith? Why is this like the pinnacle of our prayer service that we stand and we face peace and we do all this stuff? Why do we do that during the Shema? You know, why do we pick that to be the prayer? Well, today we're going to unpackage that and talk about why, and historically, why that's the case. I want to do that using ten words. And it's very fitting that we're talking about the ten words, the ten commandments, but I'm going to use ten words from the Shema. So the Shema prayer is the Shema and the Ve'ahat combined. That whole thing is the Shema, right? So we're going to cover ten words. And I've got it here in print. So this is the Hebrew. You see Shema right there at the top right corner? This is it in print. Shema is right there. And there's also vowel pointings to assist the reader here. But we have Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. So these red circled words here are what we're going to cover. Let me go through ten of them real quick. We have Shema. Echad, ve'ahavta, navshecha, me'odecha, ve'shenatam, uchshartam, le'totafot, mezuzot. So we're going to cover those ten words, 
and teach you a little bit more, and maybe you'll have a better understanding of the Shema and the Be'ahavta and why it is so central to our faith. And here it is, the first two words. We're going to cover Shema and Echad. And I'm going to try to use this video here. I'm going to see if the sound wants to work for me. salt and pepper, I'm pretty sure we have that as well. I put that in the cart. I get a can of black olives. 
I get a head of lettuce, tomatoes. And meanwhile, she's getting hangrier by the minute at home, right? And I get home and I have all these things and I bring them in. She's like, what is all of this? Where are the sandwiches? And I get a loaf of wheat bread. I'm like, what? This is it, right? You're gonna make no, I wanted the deli to make the sandwiches and you bring home so I could eat. And so we had to return all this stuff that we could return to. So anyways, I was listening, but I didn't fully shema. I didn't understand her instructions. And that's what shema means is to understand with the intent to do. Okay? The other word, sometimes people get tripped on, tripped up on is echad. Now echad means one, but does it have to mean only one? You see here, Shema Yisrael Adonai Adonai Echad, right there. What does that word mean? Like, you know, when Yeshua says, John 10, 30, and I and the Father are one. And at this, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. So that could be problematic if you take the Shema at its face value. Because if Yeshua's claims of divinity are true, then how could there be like this, or if the Ruach of HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, has divine aspects as well, then how can there be one and only God? If Yeshua is God, the Holy Spirit is the essence of God as well. That can be problematic. Well, here's kind of the answer, is the word Echad does not mean just one. It means to be unified in purpose. It's used right here. This is one of the many occurrences of the word Echad. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become, and let, uh, what is it in Hebrew? They shall become one flesh. Now, are Stacy and I like one human being? When we get married, do we, like, does our DNA change to be the same person? No. But we're unified. We're like one person. So that when my sons come to me and they ask me a question and I give them an answer, then they go to her, they should get the same answer, ideally, right? We should be unified, we should be echai. Alright? That's the essence of that's the essence of our creator. Is that he is one, but he's also unified. And he can manifest himself in different ways because he's outside of space-time. And and he can clothe himself in flesh. But then Yeshua can look back and say, I and the Father are one. Okay? So don't let that trip you up too much. But Echad is a little bit broader than we think it is. Now, where is the second part of the Shema? If you look at Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, it goes right into, and you shall love the Lord your God. But where is the, what's the second part of the Shema that we pray? Baruch Shem Kavod Makuto Le'olam Bayed. Where is that in here? It's not in there. So this is where a lot of people's... Uh, anti-rabbinic alarms go off. Wait a second, it's a Jewish tradition. Bing, 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 bing. Yes, it is. It is Jewish tradition. That is a couple with the Shema. And it's a beautiful tradition. It's a good tradition. You might be thinking, well, did they just make it up? No, they didn't just make it up. It came from Psalm 72, 19. Blessed be his glorious name forever. So what we're doing is we're saying Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then we're quoting Psalm 72, 19. And we're going right into that. Baruch Shem Kavod Makuto Le'olam Vayed. But we have another problem. When I read that in Hebrew, the word Vayed is not there. It just goes Baruch Shem Kavod Makuto Le'olam. And that's the end of the verse. Where did Vayed come from? Why do we say Vayed? Because we're saying, Blessed be your name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and then more. Why is that not in that verse? Or like we could say forever and then some. Well, the answer lies in, I think I have the screen for you, yeah, right there. So you see the Shema in Hebrew, every Torah scroll around the world, this is how the Shema is written, with an enlarged Ayn and then an enlarged Dalit. These two letters put together spell the word Ed. Ed means a witness, like someone who's witnessing something, but also it means time. Time. Time can be a witness, right? So it says that the Shema is like a witness either for or against you. Your adherence to this prayer is going to testify against you or on your behalf. Whether or not you love the Lord your God, whether or not you teach it to your children, whether or not you love your neighbor or yourself, all of that will be like a witness for you or against you. But that's where our va'ed part comes from. It's right there embedded in the Shema, but 
Where did this tradition come from that we say Vaed at the end of the Shema? Well, the Pharisees added it during Second Temple times. They said when we say the Shema in the synagogues, we should say it Baruch Shem Kavod Machuto Leolam, and then let's add in Vaed a little bit more because it speaks of the age to come, the afterlife, the post-resurrection era is what they would say. And that differentiated them from the heretics. Who would the heretics be? Who did not believe in the resurrection? The Sadducees. Yeah. So when you say the Baruch Shem Kavod Malchuto Bayed, you're saying and repeating a Pharisaical tradition that goes back 2,000 years ago, which I believe is a good tradition. But also, the Baruch Shem Kavod Malchuto Bayed is connected to the utterance of the Holy Name. So anytime the high priest would come out of the temple, especially on Yom Kippur, anytime the Holy Name was uttered by the high priest, everyone fell prostrate on the ground. Picture tens of thousands of people laying on the ground and, and, and just laying on the ground prostrate and all in unison saying those words. Baruch Shem Kavod Mahuto Leoban Bayed. So it's, it's, it's connected to the utterance of the divine name. And you see the divine name is right here. So we, we, we recognize the divine name and then we automatically say, blessed be his glorious name, his kingdom is forever and ever, and then in the age to come. Ed, and then some more. Interesting? Maybe you didn't know that. But that's, that's where that comes from. Let's go on to our next word, which is Ahava. Ve'ahavta is how we say it. And that's the name of the second part of the prayer. And I'm going to queue up the next video here for that. For thousands of years, every morning and evening, Jewish people have prayed these well-known words as a way of expressing their devotion to God. They're called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. We're going to look at the third key word in this prayer, how Israel is called to love their God. But what does that mean? Love is a very common word in most languages, as it is in ancient Hebrew. It's pronounced ahava. It most basically refers to the kind of affection or care that one person shows another. It sometimes describes physical affection, like the king of Persia's love for Queen Esther. But there are other Hebrew words that more specifically refer to physical desire or sex. Ahava is more broad. So Abraham had Ahava for his son Isaac, that's parental love. Jonathan showed Ahava for his friend David, that would be brotherly love. In fact, a whole group of people can have Ahava for their leader, like when the Israelites showed love for their king David. Ahava can even describe loyalty between political allies, like Hiram, the king of Tyre, loved David. They had good relations, and so Hiram wanted to help David's son Solomon build the temple. These are all different kinds of affection described with the one word, Ahava. Now all of this is helpful for understanding God's Ahava in the Old Testament. So in Deuteronomy, Moses told the Israelites, God showed affection for you, he chose you because of his Ahava for you. So God doesn't love because the Israelites earned it or deserved it. It simply originates from God's own character. He loves because he loved. This is why Jeremiah can say that God's love is everlasting. It has no end because it has no beginning. God's love just is an eternal fact of the universe. And God's love is not duty. It's a genuine feeling, an affection God experiences. This is why the prophet Hosea compares God's love for his people to a husband's ahava for his wife, or to a parent showing ahava for their child. It's one of the strongest things that God feels. But that doesn't mean that God's love is just a feeling. God's love is also in action. It's something God chooses to do. Like when Moses says, because of God's ahava for your ancestors, he brought you out of Egypt with great power. God's love isn't just a sentiment. It is something God does. And so, in the Shema, Israel is called to respond to God's ahava by showing ahava in return. And just like God's love, human love is to show itself through action. Like in Deuteronomy 10, what does the Lord your God ask of you except to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him and serve him and to keep his commandments? 
all of these actions are centered around the blood. If I'm not doing them, I don't actually love God, I just say I do. Which leads to one last thing. In the Old Testament, I show my love for God by how I treat the people around me. In Deuteronomy, we read that God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and he chose Ahava for the immigrants among them, giving them food and clothing. And so you also show Ahava for the immigrants. So the people are to imitate God's Ahava by showing Ahava for others. This is the idea underneath the famous line, you shall Ahava your neighbor as yourself. And so at the end of the day, all of this is rooted in God's own eternal Ahava. Like we read in the New Testament letter of 1 John, we love because God first loved us. And that's the Hebrew word, Ahava. Now we're going to go to Nafshika. What is a nefesh? And uh, we're, we're trying to write along. Uh, I've got a quick video for that. But let me talk real quick before we talk about nefesh. Um, you're, you, you are consisted of three parts. Your nefesh, which is the nefesh chai that God has breathed into you, which you breathe into Adam. That's what animates your body. Then there's the biological part of you that you can touch and see, right? And then there's also this part called your neshama, which is like the the inner instinctual, like animalistic drive in you. You know when Paul says that I'm, my my spirit is at war with the flesh, you know, that's that that's that waging war that's going on between your instinctual drive for something, survival or reproduction or whatever, but then the nefesh is at war with that. The nefesh is that divine aspect of you that God breathed into you, the breath of life that is animating that. So we're going to talk about what the nefesh, because he says that you are to worship me with all of your heart, with all of your soul, your nefesh, and with all of your strength. So here we go. For thousands of years, every morning and evening, Jewish people have prayed these well-known words as a way of expressing their devotion to God. They're called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. We're going to look at the word soul. The Hebrew word is nefesh. It occurs over 700 times in the Old Testament. The common English translation of this word is soul, and that's kind of unfortunate. Here's why. The English word soul comes with lots of baggage from ancient Greek philosophy. It's the idea that the soul is a non-physical, immortal essence of a person that's contained or trapped in their body to be released at death. It's a ghost in the machine kind of idea. This notion is totally foreign to the Bible. It's not at all what nephesh means in biblical Hebrew. The most basic meaning of nephesh is growth. Like when Israelites are wandering in the wilderness, they're hungry and thirsty, and they say to God, we miss the cucumbers and melons we had in Egypt, now our nephesh has dried up. Or when Joseph was hauled off into slavery in Egypt, his nephesh was put into iron shackles. But nephesh doesn't only mean throat. Since your whole life and body depend on what comes in and out of your throat, nephesh could also be used to refer to the whole person. Like in Genesis, there were 33 nephesh in Jacob's family, that is, 33 people. In the Torah, a murderer is called a nephesh slayer, and a kidnapper is called a nephesh thief. On the first pages of the Bible, both humans and animals are called a living nephesh. And if the life breath has left a human or animal, the nephesh remains. It's just called a dead nephesh, that is, a corpse. So, in the Bible, people don't have a nephesh, rather, they are a nephesh, a living, breathing, physical being. Now, that might surprise you, because most people assume the Bible says the soul is what survives apart from the body after death. And while the biblical authors do have a concept of people existing after death, waiting for their resurrection, they rarely talk about it. And when they do, they don't use the word nephesh. So even though nefesh is often translated as soul, the Hebrew word really refers to the whole human as a living physical organism. In fact, this is why biblical people can often use this word to refer to themselves, and it gets translated me or I. Like in Psalm 119, most translations read, let me live that I may praise you. In Hebrew, the poet literally says, let my nefesh live that it may praise you. 
But by using nefesh, the poet emphasizes that their entire being, their life and their body, offer thanks to God. In the Song of Songs, the young woman constantly refers to her lover as the one my nefesh loves. And of course, love isn't just an intellectual experience, it's an emotion that activates your whole body, your entire nefesh. This helps us understand the brilliance of other biblical poets who could combine multiple meanings of nefesh in one place. Like in Psalm 42, we read, as the deer pants for the water, so my nephesh pants after you. My nephesh thirsts for the living God. So, on a physical level, your throat can be thirsty, like a deer's. But then that physical thirst can become a metaphor for how your whole physical being longs to know and be known by your Creator. Which brings us all the way back to the Shema. To love God with all of your nephesh means to devote your whole physical existence to your Creator, the one who granted us these amazing bodies in the first place. It's about offering your entire being with all of its capabilities and limitations in the effort to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And that's the Hebrew word for soul. Okay, so far we've got Shema, Yisrael, Adonai, Elohim, Adonai, Echad. Ve'ahavta et Adonai, Elohecha, ve'chol levavcha, u'vechol nashachar, your soul. U'vechol me'odecha. So what is a me'od, or who is me'od? Let's just try to answer that question, and they do a great job answering that question. Much better than what I could do as well. Here we go. For thousands of years, every morning and evening, Jewish people have prayed these well-known words as a way of expressing their devotion to God. They're called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. But we're going to look at the last word, strength. The Hebrew word is ma'od, and it occurs some 300 times in the scriptures, and it doesn't actually mean strength. There is a perfectly good word for strength in Hebrew, and ma'od is not it. In fact, the Shema is one of the only places in the whole Bible where ma'od is translated as strength. So, what's up with that? The most common meaning of ma'od is very or much. It's what grammar nerds call an adverb, a word that comes alongside other words to augment their meaning. For example, in Genesis chapter 1, God looks at the world that he's made, and six times he calls it good. But then the climactic seventh time, he says, it is ma'od good, that is, very good. Later in Genesis, in the story of Noah, the floodwaters keep rising and they become ma'od powerful, or extremely powerful over the land. In the story of Cain and Abel, Cain wasn't just angry at his brother, he was ma'od angry. Or when Saul became the king of Israel, he was ma'od happy. So you can see why ma'od occurs hundreds of times in the Bible. It's a really common Hebrew word that intensifies the meaning of other words. Very this, or really that. However, biblical authors could use ma'od in ways that are unique. Like when they want to increase a word's force to total capacity, they'll say ma'od twice. So Jacob became ma'od ma'od wealthy with flocks and camels and donkeys and servants. Or the Israelite spies went to investigate the promised land, and they say, the land we pass through is ma'od ma'od good. So it's pretty clear, ma'od doesn't mean strength in terms of muscle power, but rather very or much. So let's come back to the Shema, where people are called to love God with all of their heart, that is their will and affection, and with all of their soul, that is their whole life and physical being, and with all of their ma'od, that is with all of their muchness. And while that sounds kind of funny, you also kind of get it. If ma'od can intensify any word's meaning to total capacity, then this final thing that you use to love God isn't a thing at all. It's actually everything. Loving God with your ma'od means devoting every possibility, opportunity, and capacity that you have to honoring God and loving your neighbor as yourself. It's the most wide and expansive word in the Shema. Ma'od can refer to almost anything. Which raises one last and really fascinating point. Because this word was capable of many nuances of meaning, ancient Jewish communities interpreted ma'od in the Shema in different ways. So the ancient Jewish scholars who translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek, when they came to ma'od in the Shema, they translated it with the Greek word dunamis, that is power or strength. This is the interpretation adopted by most modern translations. But if you look at the ancient Aramaic translations of the Hebrew Bible, you'll discover that these scholars interpreted ma'od to mean wealth, 
Money is a concrete thing that opens up all kinds of opportunities to love God by giving away resources. And when Jesus was asked about the most important command in Scripture, he quoted the Shema. And he used two words to unpack the meaning of Mahalo. He said, love God with all of your mind and with all of your power. Both are human capacities that can be used to love God in an infinite number of ways. So which of these interpretations of Ma'od is right? Does it mean strength or wealth or mind? That's the wrong question. The word Ma'od doesn't limit the number of ways you can show love for God, just the opposite. The point is that everything in a person's life, every moment and every opportunity, every ability and capacity offers a chance to love and honor the one who made you. It's a call to love God with all of your muchness. And that's the meaning of strength in the Shema. Alright, so we have Shema Yisrael, Adonai, Mahina, Adonai, Echad, Ve'ahavta, with all your Ahava. You have better I'm saying Ahava now. Ve'ahavta, et Adonai, Lehecha, Bechol, Adachor, Bechol, Nafshika, with all your Nefesh. And then with all of your very muchness. Kind of funny thing. So let's move right along. Ve'ahayu hadavrim ha'aleh, Asher nokim asafra yom alavecha, ve'shenatam. Now that word right there is another word we have to unpackage, and I'm not going to rely on the Bible project for doing that. This is the word that it is in, in Hebrew here, Shanan. And um, I need some people to look up some verses for me. Psalm 120, verse 4. Can I get someone on this side to look up Psalm 120, verse 4? Someone on this side to look up Psalm 45, 5. And then someone on the back row, can you take Psalm 73, 21? When you get it, just raise your hand and read it real loud. Go ahead. A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. So that word sharp there, warrior sharp arrows, is the word shanan. Shanan. It's the word to sharp, like to sharpen an arrow. Who's got the next one over here? Psalm 45, 5. Who's got it over here? Because it doesn't really make sense that we're supposed to teach them diligently. Teach them diligently to your children. How does that, is the connection there? Well, because shanan doesn't mean diligently. It means the idea of sharpening like a knife. Now, if you've ever sharpened a knife or seen a knife sharpen, it is a repetitive action on, it's, a, it's applied force in a repetitive way, isn't it? So you have something that, like, you know, Robin probably has sharpened many knives in his day. And it is, you apply a little bit of force, but it is more repetition than it is force. You got me? So with your children, when you're teaching them the Torah, the Word of God, it's more repetition than it is force. But it is that repetition that will teach them. Okay? It's consistent repetition. That's Shanan. We covered some instances there. Okay, we're going to move right along. So we've got teach them diligently to your children. Uh, uh, where am I at? Usha, uh, and you know, talk about them when you're sitting in your houses, when you're walking by the way, when you when you arrive, when you lie down, and when you wake up. And here's our next word right here. Ukshartam. Ukshartam. Now the word the root of the word is kufshin resh. And here it is pulled out. Ukshartam. So kashar is our roots. And it means to tie them. But it means a little bit more than just to tie them to your hand. And you can see in the background picture there, there was a Holocaust survivor with his tattoo with tefillin tied to his arm. So let me tell you how Judaism today interprets this commandment. They look at it at a literal level. It doesn't say, it doesn't say to not look at it on a literal level, right? It doesn't say, oh, they take whatever I'm about to tell you here, take it metaphorically and you know, they take it to be literal. So they'll take literally the words of Deuteronomy 6 and they will tie them to their arm as a sign. And just the other day when we were in Brussels airport, was it in Brussels? Uh, we, we watched an Orthodox man 
fulfill that commandment of tying the words to his arm during one prayers. Now, these things that they tie to their arms are called tefillin. Tefillin means the prayers. So you're literally taking the prayers and, hey, Jeremy, can I use your Would you mind opening this? Now, I have, these are probably upwards of 100 years old. If you're coming on here and face it, Isaac. These are upwards of 100 years old. It's a set of tefillin, leather tefillin that I have. And, uh, but can you unravel that one for me? You'll see these are just, it's a leather band. And these date back for thousands of years. Did you know that in the caves of Qumran, the Dead Sea Caves, they found remnants of tefillin like this. During the times of Yeshua, the Pharisees would bind tefillin, hold that black box up there. They would bind tefillin on their arm, and they would leave it on all day, as a way of fulfilling the commandment all day long. Now, in Judaism, it's just during, during morning prayers that you bind tefillin, and not on Shabbat. But in this black box here, is a tiny little piece of parchment, on which is written the Shema. So they're literally taking the words and binding them as a prayer upon their hand. Just like we see this man in the picture here. And then, let's move on to our next word. Oh, with this, this word appears, this verb appears here in Genesis 28, 38. And when she saw she was in labor, when she was in labor, she put uh, one put out a hand and the midwife took in kashar, a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. So to kashar, it means something a little bit deeper. It means to bind with, to connect with, or conspire with someone, okay? Kashar is not just a simple tying knot like on your shoe. It's a little bit more intense than that, okay? So Jews, even to this day, will take the words of Deuteronomy 6 and the Shema, and they will tie them, kashar them, to their hands. So here's what they read. When you're tying the tefillin to your hand, and especially when you come out to your fingers here, you actually will recite Hosea 2, 18 to, 18 to 20. On that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the creatures that crawl on the ground. And I will abolish the bow and sword and weapons of war in the land and will make them lie down in safety. So I will betroth you to me forever. This is where they're wrapping it around their fingers, okay? I will betroth you to me forever in righteousness and justice, in loving devotion and compassion. And I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will know the Lord. So picture that. You're reciting Hebrews, or Hosea 2 in Hebrew as you're reciting that. As you're binding that to fill and thus fulfilling in a literal way that commandment. This is a very solemn thing for them to do. Um, and one I have utmost respect for. Personally, I don't, but I know people who do. And I have utmost respect for people who do that and bind to fill in. Yeshua would have bound to fill in. Um, I don't know if he would have worn them all day, but he definitely would have bound to fill in. It was a very typical thing for rabbis to do in the first century. But that's just the arm. The next part of this prayer is, so you bind the oats as a sign. An oats is a visible sign of something. Al yadeka on your hand, but yad is, it could be your fingertips or it could be your elbow. So, Judaism is like, well, what is it, your arm or is it your hand? Well, let's do both. <laughs> so let's bind into our entire arm and all the way out to our hand and make sure we fulfill the commandment to the specifications. But then it goes on, Vehayu letotafots bein eneka. And they shall be like totafots between your eyes. What is a totafot? No idea. <laughs> That's the only place in the Torah where that word is ever mentioned. Totafots. And there's all kinds of discussion. You can pull the other one out. There's all kinds of discussion in the Talmud and elsewhere in rabbinic literature. What does totafos mean? And nobody can really come to a consensus. Um, but they're like frontlets is the best thing that we can describe. Uh, but so the, the totafot would go over the head in the box. These words, you shall bind them as a sign of your hand and let them be frontlets between your eyes. So Judaism says, well, we should not take this metaphorically. It doesn't tell us to take it metaphorically. It's just a straightforward commandment. Let's tie them to our hands, and then let's put them between our eyes. And how do we accomplish that? Well, Jews would take, and they would, they would actually put that over their head here. And this little box with Deuteronomy 6 has that little tiny piece of parchment in it. 
And so that they're fulfilling that commandment that they would sit between their eyes. Okay? Again, I really respect this, this fulfillment and this approach of fulfilling that, fulfilling that commandment. I have a lot of respect for that. And they do this day in and day out. And it has kept them as a people together and bound together for thousands of years. So you can um, you can take it wrap those back up and put them outside the room. Thank you, Jim. Yeah, there's there's all kinds of different methodologies and stuff that you yeah, depending on what sector you're using here. Ascribe to absolutely. Alright, let's keep moving along. Bang Inga. Uhtatam al Mezuzots. And you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and upon your gates. So how do we fulfill this commandment? Because it doesn't say, it does not say you are to take this metaphorically. So we are to assume if we can complete this commandment and fulfill this commandment, let's do it. So how does how, how for thousands of years have the Jewish people been keeping this commandment? By affixing, by writing the, the, these words on their doorposts. How do they do that? Well, they take a piece of parchment. Oh, there's a book. They take a piece of parchment and they put it in a little container and they affix it to their door frame. Now I have these, if you come to my home, every exterior door in my home has a mezuzah, we call them. A mezuzah is this little container in which is found Deuteronomy chapter 6. And many of you have them on your homes. And some of these are photos of your mezuzot that I took or you sent me from the mezuzah on your door. So uh, this one here is mine. I don't know who the other two belong to, though. I forget. Let's keep going. I have a couple more. This is another one of mine that is on my front door that Bill made for me years ago. Man, it's been a long time. Six years or so you made that? And he made an identical one which goes out on our front door, which, by the way, is the, the two-sided tape has worn out and we need to replace it. So I need a volunteer to take ownership of that and replace the two-sided tape. Yeah. I just wanted to know, is there a reason that most of them are slanted? Yes. Very good question. Most of them are slanted because um, Ashkenazic tradition holds that you want the Shema leaning into your home. That your, that your home is like is like embodying the Shema. Sephardic tradition, more Spanish, uh, Portuguese Jews have it standing straight up. So it's just a matter of tradition. Slants it straight up. It's just, it's just, it doesn't really matter. But that's why you see many of them because America, um, by and large, of the Jewish population in America, they're mostly Ashkenazic and they're going to have slanted mezuzot. If you go to uh, most buildings in Israel, if it's a hotel, especially. Every single room in the hotel is going to have a mezuzah in front of the door. Okay? But you see the letter here. Somebody tell me what letter this is. A sheen. Sheen. And Julie, is that your? Julie and Jeremy, is that yours? Cool. Um, sheen. Here's some more there. Slanted in. Why do we all put the sheen on our mezuzah? Or some of them have a sheen. You see a sheen there. Why? Why is that the case? It stands for Shaddai. Shaddai is one of the names of God. And when written out, Shaddai is spelled Shin Dalit Yud, which we say is an acronym for the phrase Shomer Dalatot Israel, which means he guards uh, he guards the doors of Israel. So we find that fitting to put on our mezuzahs, Shaddai, the guardian of the doors of Israel. Okay, but that's just a tradition. You put Shaddai on your But yeah, there's some. So here is a picture of the parchment that would go inside of a mezuzah. You can buy parchment that is actually written by a scribe, handwritten with all the scribal laws and everything. Um, you know, sometimes it can be fifty to five hundred dollars. You know, it really ranges; it varies in range and cost. Sometimes you can just print them out, like you can screenshot this and just print it out and roll it up and put it inside your mezuzah. But um, if you ever need help finding a mezuzah, or putting a mezuzah on your home. I really love teaching people how to do that. Um, and going to your house, I'll be happy to help you with that and to pray over your home with you. And there's many people in this room I've done that with, and it's, it's a really neat experience, especially when you move into a new home. Um, it's really fitting that you go ahead and put a mezuzah on the door as a way of saying that El Shaddai owns this house, right? He is the guardian of my doors. Mark 12, 28, wrapping up here. No one, now one of the scribes had come up and heard their debate. Noticing how well Yeshua had answered them, he asked him, which, he says, Rabbi, which is the greatest commandment? What do you think Yeshua was going to answer? 
Here, he starts with the Shema. The most important is Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. And he goes right into the Ve'ahta. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, right? Your heart. With all your nefesh and with all your mind, your me'od. And with all your strength. And the second is this. Ve'ahta Lerecha Kamocha. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So Yeshua just echoes the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, as the greatest commandment. And the rest, as the great Rabbi Hillel says, the rest is just commentary. <laughs> the, the entire Torah hangs on those two commandments. Mark 12, 32, it keeps going. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is none other beside him. And to love him with all your heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Wow. So, there is no temple, there is no sacrifices, but guess what? We can still fulfill the greatest commandment, to love our neighbor as ourselves, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and strength. Isn't that beautiful? And when Yeshua saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask any questions. So when you love your neighbor, you're not far from the kingdom. It's just so simple. That's so difficult sometimes, isn't it? Just to simply love and reach out to your neighbor. Who is your neighbor? Everyone. It's not just a matter of proximity. So guys, I plead with you as we wrap up the Etchanan. To be doers of the word and not just hearers of the word, right? As James 1 puts it out. You know, when you're a hearer of the word only, it's like a man who looks at his reflection in the mirror, turns around, and forgets what he looks like. Don't do that. Let's be doers of the word. Amen? All right. We're going to go to some time for Q&A. If you have any questions or comments about what I, what, what I taught or... Um, what was that? Yeah, Brian.
if, uh, if, if one of your brothers or sisters in Christ is, is struggling in their ability to have Shema, um, what, what are some ways that you can help them in the system? You're saying if your brother or sister yes, you know, if has it's a another Christian, if you're a Christian struggling yeah. to have Shema, uh, like like some video of, of hearing but not really doing. Hearing and not doing. Um, what 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 would you say are some ways that we can help them? Okay, so for those who can't hear, if he says if you're under, if your brother or sister in Messiah, they're a believer as well. They have a problem with obedience, or maybe they're living in disobedience or something. And how do you how do you confront that? You're saying, well, do you have? I say prerequisite to that is a good relationship, and. Do they know that you love them? You love, do you truly love them? See, that's a good, that's a very important prerequisite if you're going to do the confronting. Um, because I've seen many times where people are just like, oh, I see disobedience. I have no relationship with that person or with acquaintances. I'm going to go call it out and see how it goes. It never goes well. <laughs> it usually starts a fire that later I have to put out. If you have a relationship with that person, you see open you know, disobedience going on, it's got to be open up, otherwise you wouldn't observe it. Then you have an obligation to go to them and in love point out their sin. But again, it's so important you have that relationship and you have that love. And, um, you know, if it, there's just a lot of context that has to surround that too. So if they are in, let's say, a congregation like this and you go to them and you say, hey, like, I don't think you should be watching that material on the internet or something. Um, and they're like, no, I don't care. You know, I don't really care. Um, then, then there, there is a point you have to, you have to jump into Matthew 18, or if someone does you wrong, um, and they, they sin against you, let's say, uh, maybe slander about you behind your back, and you find out about it. You, you do have an obligation according to Matthew 18 to confront them privately, but to meticulously follow the steps in Matthew 18. So again, again, cannot reiterate. How important it is to have a relationship and to truly love the person that you're about to confront in disobedience. And to do it in a way that is preserving of their dignity and their honor, but also in a way that is challenging for them so that way they would walk in obedience. And you have to make sure, remember Yeshua says, before you take the speck out, make sure there isn't a big old log hanging out of your own eye, right? So make sure that your ducks are in a row and that you're walking in obedience. Not perfectly or anything, but uh, just make sure there's no big logs in that yard. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. <laughs>